For anyone out there struggling with substance use disorder or feeling like you have an addiction that's active or if you know anyone in your life that you feel is addicted, this podcast is for you as I will be speaking with Dr. Laura Petrachek. She is the author of a new workbook called the DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction. It is an excellent book, and it really helps with a lot of exercises that can help anybody, whether you're in recovery or not in recovery, or you're a therapist looking for a great resource. Dr. Laura Petrachek, PhD and licensed clinical social worker, is a DBT therapist, and she is certified. In her own words, she is a recovering addict, and she uses her own experiences with recovery and treatment to help others. She received her Master of Social Work from the Wurlitzer School of Social Work and her PhD in Clinical Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She has worked in the field of psychotherapy for more than 30 years, 26 of which have been spent practicing as a clinical psychologist in California. Dr. P, as a lot of people refer to her, is an LGBTQ member and ally. She believes that mental illness can make you feel like you're in a free fall because you've lost control of your mind, but emphasizes that it's okay not to be okay. She is committed to providing the highest quality psychotherapy services as a psychologist and an author that honor where individuals are on their personal growth journeys. Dr. P is the author of the Anger Workbook for Women and the DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction, which will be the topic of today's podcast. I am Paul Krause, and I'm the host of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm also a licensed professional counselor and a clinical director. I'm so excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. P. Laura Petrachek, PhD, today. But first, let me tell you about Therapist Billing Services. It is an all-in-one billing service that is not like the rest because it was created by therapists for therapists and even does checks to make sure your clients have the benefits to engage with you in counseling, helps you get on insurance panels, and so much more. That's Therapist Billing Services, LLC, www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Laura Petrachek, PhD, LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Paul. I'm very excited to be here as well. Excellent. So we are going to be talking about a lot of things, but one of the big things we're going to be talking about is your new book, The DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction, Skills and Strategies for Emotional Regulation, Recovery and Relapse Prevention, um, which has just come out in the last year, this year. Right. It came out in February, 2023. Yes. Yes. And I've been enjoying this book. It's um, concise and it has a lot of uh, good um, activities and uh, a lot of good education. I feel like it's a book you can you can actually just read about two or three pages a day and actually get a lot out of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very dense. Yes, it's dense, but it like you know gives you stuff to do. So that's right. why I liked it because like I read the beginning and I was like, oh, that's really informative. And then. Um, and then in chapter one, you you kind of have like an anecdote and a story and information, and then you kind of get right down to it with the activities. Yes. Um, so I, I think this is very good. But I think for the listeners out there, I think they, they might want to know a little bit about um, DBT, which is Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Um, right. 
and learn a bit about that so they can understand why you wrote the book and sort of who it's for. Um, So maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, maybe why you wrote the book first and uh, go from there. Okay. Um, Well, why I wrote the book or the idea I got for the books, just some backstory. I'm in recovery 44 years, um, 45 years. And uh, my sobriety date is September 7th, 1976. Um, When I was three years sober, I wasn't sure what was happening. I was emotionally spiraling down. It was much more than just a depression. And my sponsor took me to a treatment center. And there, I, I hadn't relapsed, but I wanted to go. She said, you need a safe place. And there they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. And then fast forward, you know, years later, um, my daughter went to college, uh, I left for college, and I went into a severe depression. They couldn't really find anything to help it. And this one treatment they tried kind of backfired, and I went into another manic break for the second time in my life. Um And they did the usual drug regimen, but I was still really suffering. So my psychiatrist and therapist recommended DBT. Now, I myself as a psychologist have actually ironically gone through DBT training. I'm a DBT certified uh, therapist, Um, but it's much better. I mean, it's much different imparting what you've learned than being a client. And so in one of the groups, the therap- one of the therapists said, pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. And I said, you know, I've heard that for years in AA, but the how to not suffer has always eluded me. I mean, they say, okay, you just accept it, but I, I need more tools than that, you know? And, and DBT is full of tools. They have like 200 compared to the AA program are 12 and 12, maybe have 20. Um, And so I thought this would be great to combine DBT with the 12 step program. And so that's where I got the idea. And then I just kind of put it on the shelf, not for long though. I was gonna wait till I was retired, which would have been like 10 years. Um, But then COVID happened. I was like, well, not much to do. (laughs) Might as well write this book. And that's what I did. Excellent. So yeah, there is a lot there with uh, starting with your own story and then how you've helped people for years and now putting it into a book form, especially for people suffering from alcohol and drug addiction. Because I know there's, of course, there's the big DBT workbooks out there that uh, a lot of people go through the main program, which is like a group, um, an intensive group where you learn the skills and practice the skills. And then there are some uh, therapists out there that just sort of know the skills will teach you some skills here and there, but it's not as intensive. Um, and this is yes. specifically for, I love this r- emotional regulation, recovery in relapse prevention. I think that order was very intentional because one of the hardest things about, um, when you've been using a lot of drugs or alcohol consistently is that in some ways they become the way we both emotionally regulate and yeah. the way we also become dysregulated. Um, mm-hmm. 
And and if you can get emotionally regulated without them, then I think recovery can begin because it's really hard to recover when your emotions are all over the place. And a lot of people don't realize, not every person uses alcohol and drugs, of course, uses it for this reason. But if you're consistently using it, um, oftentimes you don't realize how much of a ritual it's become to help us feel better than we than we do normally with our emotions and recovery yeah so and then recovery of course is like when you try to not use them either (laughs) completely uh stop or harm reduction which would be uh, minimizing it in your in your life uh so yeah I, i think that's great i um i believe dialectical behavioral therapy was first come up with by Dr. Marsha Linehan, and then it's kind of expanded from there. So for people that are tuning in about the, um, the, you know, the alcohol and drug portion, I think people will probably tune in for that. I have a couple of questions and I love this quote. You talked about pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional because I feel like it's a very grown up, mature, wise standpoint. You know, that if you if you believe life is just about excitement and fun and pleasure, it's going to be a very difficult road. But if you see that pain is part of life and, and so is pleasure and and actually integrate that, I think that's the hard part. Um, can you explain maybe a, a, a few things about how maybe people can start integrating that sort of concept of pain is inevitable, suffering is optional? Sure. So one of the ways is like, okay, that's accepting that, uh, like for myself, I'm um, alcoholic and uh, recovering addict. So that's the pain part. You know, that's the suffering is if I beat myself up about it or, you know, try to like, why am I alcoholic? Why does this happen? You know, it's not fair. Other people have to deal with this. That's the suffering. When we don't accept what's happening and when we don't um, admit, you know, that this is the way it is. It is what it is, is a common phrase. Uh, There's a DBT cartoon where on one side of the paper, um, it says it's raining. And so one person says, oh, it's terrible. Now I'm not going to be able to do my run. This is my only day off. It's so upsetting. And then on the other side is the DBT client. And they say, yep, it's raining. (laughs) They're not adding any suffering. The suffering is what uh, Dr. Linehan calls the arrows, the barbs that we tell ourselves, the cognitive distortion, the negative thinking, the beating up on ourselves. Uh, that's the added suffering. That's the suffering we add to what's already happening. I mean, uh, it could be as simple as, you know, a rainy day or um, that someone died and we just go over and over it. And that's the suffering we cause ourselves instead of more doing mindfulness, meditation, accepting, talking with people. Yeah, like yeah. in a way, um, 
it all also some of these concepts remind me of like buddhist teachings of like becoming friends mm -hmm. with what your pain is or or welcoming in uh the trouble you've you've had and being honest and i can't remember, i'm not quoting buddhist texts but this is sort of things i've heard from right. buddhist teachers um mm -hmm. welcoming in what the suffering is and acknowledging your your pain in that way um and i'm wondering if you know dbt seems to be a combination of a lot of different techniques and ideas um yes. how would you say dbt therapy dialectical behavioral therapy is different than maybe just like a talk therapy uh or something like that yeah good question so dbt has three prongs um so when dr linehan was doing her research uh she was working primarily with clients uh, and women, especially, who had borderline personality disorder. And she was using cognitive behavioral therapy and some mindfulness and meditation, but still wasn't having much many good results. And so then she added the uh, third diet or the third part, which is dialect or dialectical. And a lot of times people, you know, on this uh, emotional roller coaster we go on or lead ourselves on, uh, especially people in, re in recovery or addicts, you know, we have the black and white thinking, all or nothing. And Marsha instead, Dr. Linehan instead looks at, okay, I'm an alcoholic and I could still live my life mm. or I'm uh got bipolar disorder but there's medication for it and i could still live a relatively satisfying life mm -hmm. and so to put our dilemmas in there and to look at both and and then that combined with cognitive behavioral therapy which is a therapy uh designed by dr beck looking at our negative thinking patterns and then the mindfulness from the Zen Buddhism, from John Zabat Zen, from Dr. Brock, um, Tara Brock, you know, teaching clients how to meditate, um, different meditation tapes to focus on. There's different apps. And there's uh, also, of course, the uh, skills to teach how to do that. Wow. Yeah, that's that is really cool that she added that on and added all these different things. I one of the words that's always been interesting to me is dialectic or dialectics. And I feel like I like to define that word because I think that's the most difficult word of this entire <laughs> therapy, right? Because behavior, right. dialectical behavior therapy, we understand it's a therapy, so it's supposed to help us. Behavior, we're talking about like our choices and what we do and how we process, how we think. Mm -hmm. But dialectic, I, I was looking it up the other day, and in dialectics, it's the there's two, two meanings. Um, the art of investigating or discussing the truth of opinions. So sort of like reasoning or thinking through opinions that I have. Like I might have two opposing opinions. Let's say I have two opposing opinions about um, my work. Maybe part of me loves my work and part of me feels very trapped by my work, right? And then trying mm -hmm. to find that kind of middle space between those two and making Perfect. adjustments on both sides to help me feel less trapped. And while I do love my work, maybe being a bit more realistic about, okay, you love your work, but you don't like this part of your work. So maybe it's actually, I love this part of my work, but I don't like this part of my work. How do I be honest with myself about that? 
And uh, how do you not make generalities? Yes, 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 exactly. So getting more specific. No, that's that was just my that was kind of it. And then, you know, just like the opposing social forces or concepts, the existence in philosophy, talking about like different different ways of viewing things um, in the dialectic. And that that gives us space because I think when we're really stressed out, and you know this when you said our cognitive distortions, when we when we feel very stressed out or or we were traumatized by something or something went really wrong in life, maybe an adverse situation, we often think in binaries. There's only this way or that way. Yes. Right. And when Marshall Linehan, you know, taught us with DBT from what in your book, what I'm reading is there, there is not only not just two ways, there's also a third way and possibly a fourth or fifth way to, right. to view the situation, but we have to figure out how to not let our mind get into that like trap that it gets into sometimes where we feel very strongly um, one or the other. Does that sound right? It, yes, exactly. Dialectic looks at more, it's both and, so like you said, yeah. I love work and it's a little challenging about this aspect over here. Um, and like you were just sharing, Paul, it's not, you know, again, as alcoholic and addicts, we get stuck in the um, black and white thinking, either or, and thinking there's only one way or the other. And and like you said, we could get stuck. But um, the dialectic or the both and, then we see, oh, maybe there's a third option or a fourth or a fifth. And a lot of times we can't necessarily come to that on our own. That's where working with a therapist or, um, you know, using the book and then talking with someone else, uh, maybe in a group or in the program and could help us get out of that limited box thinking. Um, that really cripples us in a lot of ways. Like sometimes people say, well, I'm just going to end up, I just have, I'm an addict. So I just, in this issue, I can't change. So I'm just going to have to use. Well, really, do you have to use because let's say you're getting divorced? Let's look at that. What are some other things you could do besides pick up a drink or a drug? Mm. You know? Um, Yeah. And one of the things I saw, like you're right, a therapist, sometimes we're really in a bad place. Going to a therapist is probably one of our best options because we want another person's feedback who we can trust. And oftentimes people have in their lives really complicated family situations even complicated friend situations or work situations and at least with the therapist they're paid to follow these ethics and this confidential and you know that you're going to be getting somebody hopefully who is well trained and and trying to yes. empathize with you so you're right i mean sometimes the workbook's great i mean we can use this as a therapist you could use this workbook but also as a person you could just buy it but sometimes we do need to go to the therapist. Um, I, th- yeah, I do think- bring it to your therapist. Yeah, oh, bring it. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. what I do actually with my clients, because I'm big on homework, mm-hmm. is I go through the workbook and I say, okay, we're going to do activity one and two today or one and two this week. And then you bring it back next week and we'll start off the session reviewing activity one and two. And then we're going to learn a new skill or I'll teach you a new skill today. So it's a very interactive workbook, too, uh, for someone in therapy. It works really well that way. That's very good. And I actually found this book um, so far. I'm about halfway through. I'm going to keep reading it this summer. But I found it quite empowering. Like, I felt like 
the skills and the way you frame the skills were in this very positive strength, uh, strength based kind of concept. And like, like, uh, you're kind of, you're almost like, you know, it's like catch them doing to catch somebody doing well. Like, I feel like this book takes you through all these chapters, but there are these ways to kind of like overcome it. And, um, I wonder if that, I, I'm wondering if you got some of that from, you know, the, the, the AA and recovery world. I'm, I'm curious where you kind of, or if that was already in the DBT or not, I'm just sort of curious about how you wrote that into the book and how it is so empowering. How I implemented the AA uh, steps. Is that yeah. right? Well, yeah, kind of like, because they're in here. Some of them are in yes. here. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, they're all in there. They're all um, in there. Okay. I needed a, um, or not needed. I, you know, was struggling or challenged by how to structure the book. Yeah. So I had it in my head, what I wanted to say. And then, um, I realized, I know I could have chapter one, step one, and then the DBT tools that correspond to step one, powerless unmanageability, and then chapter two, step two, and then the DBT skills that would help with, um, you know, can you believe in a higher power? What skills help with that Mm. uh, issue? So that's why I structured... Um, it's one chapter corresponds to one step and then the DBT skills that would help uh, enhance working with that step. And that's how I structured the whole book, uh, chapters one through 12, to oh, make yes. it a little bit easier for people to understand. So let's say you're struggling with, you know, chapter 11, or I mean, step 11, um a concept of a higher power well then here's excuse me some dbt skills that might help you um address the challenges you're up against with step 11 or maybe you know step one for a lot of us is the biggie where we hit a wall like "Eh, i don't really think i'm totally alcoholic or addict or can't i just drink on the weekend or drink beer or any of those ways we try to negotiate instead of accept Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that this is, I, I saw that you wrote steps. I just didn't realize they were actually the 12 steps because you, you labeled step one. I love this. I can't stop. I love that. Is, is, <laughs> is that the, I don't know if that's, I think you, you maybe updated the language, but I like that because it's like, I can't stop dot, dot, dot. And it's like, so yeah. I, wow. Okay. So that, yeah. That so explain I, it. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. I, um, well, there's definitely, uh, maybe I would do it off camera, um, backstory, but that's that's how the structure of the book came to be. Okay, yeah, that's excellent. I appreciate that. I think it's that- one is step one, it's- or step one, and then what are the, you know, like DBT, as I stated earlier, has like 200 tools. So let's take two or three or four of those that could work with in conjunction with step one and then give you more choices or more uh, options how to approach that step, but also how to help maybe empower you to approach the step. Oh, that makes sense. Um, I would 
I, I wanted to ask some questions because I'm sure people listening, I mean, you know, obviously this is a, a very good book for anybody, but it, it'd be great to bring to your therapist, especially if you're dealing with alcohol and drug addiction. Um, the, hmm, I guess what I would say is what do you in in the system do do a lot of practitioners use dbt for substance use recovery or is this rather new because i've heard about it well, being you know that's for... a really good question so yeah initially when i was doing my research about how many practitioners or specifically treatment centers were using dbt in mm -hmm. conjunction with other therapies to work with alcohol alcohol substance abuse alcohol use disorder there weren't many but then three years later, by the time the book was finished and published, and I went online, I was like, wow, there were tons, there are lots of treatment centers now using DBT in conjunction for treating alcohol and drug addiction. And I actually was back east just a few weeks ago uh, training the staff for Providence Treatment Centers. They have three, I think, or four, um, how to implement DBT and working with alcoholic and addicts. And, um, and then I was working with another uh, organization in Minneapolis where this one psychologist, he, and this is just in like three or four years, he started one center implementing DBT with alcohol substance abuse. Now he has nine. Yeah. So, I mean, it has really taken off. And not just taken off, but to me that says there is something, you know, in the dialectical behavioral therapy that clients are really able to grab onto um, and it's helping them to not just get clean and sober, stay clean and sober. And it's also, um, I don't think it's a necessarily complicated uh, therapy, although it's there's a lot there <laughs> um but uh so the therapist i mean you could go through the training like i did the year-long really intense training but then there's more variation modifications of it that therapists could learn and then from there to teach the clients but yeah if you just put now in dbt uh for alcohol and drug addiction you'll see a lot of different treatment centers that have it and i'm just really surprised how it's just like sprung in the past several years, it's it's really remarkable. Actually, it's 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 exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. I think I, I did study some uh, alcohol and drug treatment. A lot of it um, really started in the '60s and '70s, uh, 1970s. And uh, back in the day, they used to use confrontation and guilt and all oh, sorts yeah, of things. Oh yeah, when I went through rehab, I had to wear a sign. You know, you had to wear signs back then. I mean, shaming. You know, that's what they thought, you know, that therapy or not therapy, but this is supposed to help the addict. Um, luckily, like halfway through, they let go of that and got more into being compassionate and understanding. But um, but yeah, that's that's what treatment was like back in the day. Shaming, knock you down. And then build you up. But meanwhile, most of us would just be laid out on the floor and not very easy if someone has uh, PTSD or, you know, um, all the different uh, traumas that one could 
uh, experience growing up. That's not going to help them. No, but they didn't back then. No, they didn't. They, and I think, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the research has come a long way because then they started getting into motivational interviewing and um, yes. I'm trained in the adolescent community reinforcement approaches is very re- related to strength-based pro-social skills, teaching people skills, mo- a lot of motivational interviewing. But I actually think DBT is like the next link because I, lo- I know a lot of the treatment centers still use motivational interviewing and the decisional yeah. balancing skills to, at the beginning to kind of help you understand, you know, you know, what am I doing here? But in that compassionate way, right? And maybe right. like, hey, maybe we need to also have you work with a trauma therapist to kind of figure out some of the reasons you're trying to block things out or if, the, if that's one of the reasons you're using. But right. with, with the DBT, I feel like maybe it's exploding because it's empowering. It actually gives you something to do in place of using right? Like, oh, I can actually, what I was trying to use the drug for, the alcohol for, I can do myself. And I feel like that is a message that instead of making people like feel shame and guilt, like, oh, I'm the worst. I use drugs again. Oh no, I disappointed everyone. It's like, no, I'm learning skills and strategies now that I can empower myself. And I feel like that's gotta be part of it. Um, I was curious, what are some of your favorite skills? that you love like maybe like one or two um i love the stop skill okay so um stop stands for well s stop Mm -hmm. so when uh, especially being in a conversation that maybe is starting to feel heated like just recently i had a house guest and uh uh it, it is minor thing it was about a meal but anyway I noticed she was getting upset and I was starting to mirror her. And then I said, stop. She's like, what? I said, no, I'm mm-hmm. saying stop to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then part of that is then take a step back. Mm-hmm. And there's something just physical about taking a step back because a lot of times when we're upset, we tend to move forward, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. in an aggressive way, but it does kind of come off that way. And when we physically step back, we're actually removing ourselves somewhat from the situation and we're not as amped up. We're not continuing that. And then T stands for temperature. So to change the temperature and how you're feeling Mm. uh, in the Dr. Linehan's training, she has people, there's a bowl in the front of the class full of ice water and each person had to, uh, well, they had it for each one to be sanitary. Uh, You put your face in it. Oh. And boy, physiologically, that'll just <laughs> oh yeah, that'll change any uh, heated discussion you're having or, or heated feelings. Oh yeah. Um, and what I uh, I work with a lot of uh, adolescents, and so I, um, of course, that's not always ex- you know accessible. I have them have the uh, carry the instant ice packs in their backpack, mm. and, and have them like break it, hold it. Uh, maybe go to the bathroom to do that. Or even if it's not, you know, just do it right there in the classroom, then you can just put your hand in your backpack, but uh, because it, it needs to be right there. Uh, and for other people, I have them put one in their car, in their glove compartment, especially in the Bay Area. Driving is so frustrating. And so to help with that feeling of anger and frustration when you're driving. Um, the O stands for observing. Okay, what what's happening here all right mm. you're upset about this meal 
and I feel it's fine. And so what, let's try to get some clarity here, kind of to slow down. And then the P, the P stands for proceed with caution. So now you took, you took a step back and now you're going to come back into re-engage, but proceed mindfully. Hmm. And it might be, um, you know, to take a time out. It might be, let's revisit uh, this discussion later. Hmm. Um, another one that I really love, and I don't necessarily, I mean, it's not a, a skill you use, but one to remember. And Dr. Lina has, you know, says time and time again, don't attack. Hmm. And, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic family and boy, I know that one like inside and out. And um, so if I'm in a emotional discussion, you know, to remember, don't attack, hmm. don't attack, you know, um, because that's, that's what I knew before I came into recovery and uh, I came into my own therapy or started my being in therapy myself. Um, very limited skills, and most of them were not helpful <laughs> in terms right. of interpersonal effectiveness. Mm. Uh, so she, there's another one she calls Dear Man. She loves acronyms. So a lot of skills have acronyms, but they're also, it's really helpful to remember them because it's it's information that if you just read it like out of a textbook, you you know, and then you're on the spot, you just forget it. But these acronyms help you remember. So her acronym is Dear Man. And so I changed it a little bit. I said, Dear Woman. Mm. And um, so the, you know, the D is to describe the situation to the other person. You know, okay, this is what I'm aware of. This is what I'm noticing. E is express how you feel. Um, A is to assert yourself. Um, R is to look at a way that maybe you could resolve the situation, but be respectful. Uh, woman, look at the whole picture. H, um, again, holistic. And then O is for another observation of how things are going now. M is to practice, use, put in mindfulness skills, A and N. Um, a and, and again, being assertive and N to um, kind of not wrap it up, but summarize uh, what has taken place. Um, another one I love is called No Apologies. Mm. And I mean, for me, even after I came into recovery, if you stepped on my toe, I would say, I'm sorry. I apologize for everything. I apologize for being alive. So this was a really good tool for me to be mindful of, wait, why am I, is this really an appropriate place or situation to apologize? And because she said by apologizing too much, even when it's not a, our fault, is, you know, keeping us, our self-esteem lower. Um, it adds to emotional dysregulation. So it, it's been helpful to me because that's usually like my default. Oh, I'm sorry, because I, I don't like conflict, right? And so that could end it. But yet, A, it doesn't really resolve the situation. And B, wait, that does it's not really being 
um, mindful or respectful to myself. And, and it's also making me, you know, lowers my own self-esteem. And is that really true? So I remember when I was starting a, an internship as a social worker, and I kept apologizing to the woman training me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. She goes, Laura, what are you apologizing for? You're brand new at this agency. How would you know this stuff? Mm. And that was like, well, too. And my therapist said, too, how, how would you know it? But, you know, growing up in an alcoholic family, it was, you know, let's scan the area and, and to know it like that before, you know, you could make a, a plan for yourself to get out of it. Um so it was really, it, it's been very uh, eye-opening. Yeah. So I, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's great. Oh. I, I love these skills. I, I feel like that is, and then memorizing them with these acronyms is just so smart to kind of make a mnemonic device because that's how it's easy yes. for us to remember. Yeah. And I could see you just memorize them because they were coming right out and <laughs> And, uh, you know, and like what I hear you saying there, you know, when you stopped apologizing or whatever, I don't know if that was the skill, but you were talking about how you did that. It's like you had grown up apologizing immediately to try to sort of maybe stop a situation from escalating or something like that is kind of what I was getting from that. And right. Or being a peacekeeper, peacekeeper. like, you know, I don't I, I, I don't like, you know, because conflict once conflict started, it was all over. So trying to stop the conflict even if I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And these sort of things we do, you know, we're, we're all grow up differently and, and we're programmed to do things in a certain way based on some, you know, habits we had as a child or as an adolescent or even when we're in a job somewhere. So I think that these skills, the, the combination of skills is so that you can then take a break and not take a break, but like take a time out sort of and look at these things in a way that makes sense, that, mm -hmm. a way that kind of brings you through a method. And I remember you were talking about in the beginning of the book, you're talking about the combination of mindfulness and then interpersonal effectiveness skills, which she teaches. Um, I love uh, this part about balance. Uh, this is so simple. We, It's so simple that we don't do it is the issue. Like you said, it's complicated. It is complicated, but these skills are simple, but we just don't do them. We, we make right. things too complicated. Like yes. these skills of yeah. interpersonal effectiveness, attending to relationships. Okay. Are we, have we thought about this relationship through? There's lots of skills and how to do that in the uh, book. Balancing priorities versus demands. That is so important. Um, mm -hmm. You talk to people that are so stressed out. They're like, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. And they're putting something like, I don't know, fixing a a dent in their table at the same level as feeding their child because they're so stressed out they haven't been able to evaluate the difference. Right. Exactly. And then of course, wants versus shoulds, you know, balancing those uh and kind of evaluating because those can get scrambled in our mind as well. Yes. Um, what are shoulds, you know? Uh cultivating awareness of mastery and self-respect. And I think that's huge because life kind of throws us a lot of blows sometimes and adverse experiences or trauma, like you talked about growing up in that family and the family you grew up in. I think oftentimes we as adults or whenever we decide to get into treatment or, or uh, therapy, we have to actually start developing skills of mastery and self-respect on our own because we might not have been given them. 
you know, not everybody yeah. lucks out and gets parents who are reading all the books and trying to do all those things. That's very few people I've ever met in my life. So mm -hmm. I love that. And then there's lots more in here. I'm just like paraphrasing a few things. The emotional regulation part is huge too, because you could have yeah. all these skills, but if you don't know how to emotionally regulate yourself, you might implement these skills in a very harsh, negative way and kind of shoot yeah, yourself in the foot. Exactly. It's like first things first. I agree. Um, it's very important teaching the emotional regulation skills, especially if your client is a recovering addict or alcoholic, um, because that is like our MO, not being regulated. So we need that that foundation of emotional regulation and how to do that. Because we don't have those skills. There's no way you could do like interpersonal effectiveness or dear woman because you're already all over the place. And I was thinking about that. I mean, how I, I, I don't know, maybe kids today that go to some lucky school district that teaches mindfulness have this, but I don't know almost anyone who was taught emotional regulation skills that were any good growing up. You know, the best no. one probably was take a time out. I think that was the best one I ever yeah. got taught was yeah, like, take a time it. out for 10 minutes and then come back. And oftentimes by that point, my nervous system had, you know, calmed down. I'm sure my parents had no idea what the nervous system was doing, you know, but it was just something they learned. But the other ones, uh, there weren't a lot of good ones going around <laughs> in the no. last century. Um, no, and that's, you know, there's actually an organization, mm -hmm. um, DBT in schools. They're based out oh, of Washington. Really? And, um, I, I haven't actually been able, uh, I, I did put a call into them once. I, I haven't specifically spoken with them yet, but it just looks fantastic what they're doing. And then, like, here's something I... Uh, this is what I'm using with the kids I work with. Oh, don't. DBT. Oh. What's it called? Don't let your emotions run your life for kids. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I I'm didn't using, know it existed. Yes. Yeah, so DBT works with kids. So I'm using specifically that book uh, with kids as young as five years old. And um, okay. I was actually speaking with my sister yesterday. Um, she's... Uh, basically raising her grandchildren, two grandchildren. And, mm -hmm. and I suggested this book and she goes, Oh my God, that looks great. I said, yes. You know, I think it would really, it's, it's really helped the kids I work with. And also the parents are learning right along with their children, you know, uh, because like you said, the parents, um, I mean, I didn't have any skills until I learned it in training or in therapy about being a parent, at least in a positive way. Um, and so these skills now are being taught to children, adolescents, but not on the scale, like it should be in every school curriculum, I think. You know, just basically emotion 101. What are feelings? A lot of times kids can't name what they're feeling or it's either, you know, anger or rage or depression. Not much in between. You know, or they don't, they can't name it at all because they're so withdrawn or, um, so yeah, this one program, I, in fact, that reminds me, I want to follow up with them. Um, I think it's just outstanding what they're doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, um, I'm in full favor of that. I actually, funny enough, we're on the same team because I have thought about that for years. I used to be in education um, before I was a therapist. I didn't have a long career or anything because I immediately didn't like it. But um, I, well, and partly why I didn't like it was when I was teaching in the inner cities or one inner city in particular, I, all of the kids just came to me as that I was like a long-term sub and an intern and all this and different things I was doing for college. And they, they couldn't even pay attention to the history lesson, nor did they care about it. They wanted to talk about what was going on with their friends and bullies and home life. And a lot of the yeah. kids had difficult home lives. And they told me this after class every day. I didn't know what to do. So I, it's partly why I became a therapist, but then I'm thinking, okay, why if schools have so many behavioral problems, which they do, you know, they've got yeah. all these special oh, yeah. IEPs, individualized education plans, 504 disciplinary plans. They have all of these plans that are for each kid that just gets singled out. But for every kid that's singled out, there are tons of children that don't have the skills we're talking about that have other less, Mm, I would say less on the radar problems, but still yeah. major issues that are, you know, yes. personal. They're ending up in our therapy offices all over the country. So I'm thinking, my gosh, you're right. Like, why isn't there just like 101 emotions, how to communicate this sort of thing? Because if we taught that every year and different, you know, advanced skills as you go, yeah. people are going to be able to learn better. I mean, that's not a fix all. It's not a panacea, right? We still need more physical education. We know that kids have trouble sitting still, blah, blah. Oh, there's, it's not one, but from the psychology world to the education world, if you're out there, we, we would like to implement this course, it, even if a couple of weeks a year, you know? Um, so, yeah. and, and that, that leads to, you know, instead of discipline and, and having to come back at these kids and make all of these plans and all these accommodations, Right. We're, we're coming at it from, hey, everyone's going to learn these skills. We're going to learn them together. And what I find when you do that, one kid's having a problem, the other kids will teach them, not just the teachers and the principal. That's, that's one yeah. of the theories. Yeah, exactly. And also, how can you learn when you don't have uh, the trauma addressed? It's not going to happen. You know, so no wonder all these kids came to you up to class. What do they care about history? How am I going to, you know, my mom's drinking and I don't know how, what dinner I'm going to have tonight. So I don't know how that's going to help. Well, and, and what um, you, what you okay. just said real quick, I want to point out for the listener is research based. When you said that, what, what if yeah. you don't address the trauma, you can't learn. That is literally scientific research. Hundreds of studies have proven this, that the prefrontal cortex is offline. If you're yeah. in a traumatic situation at home and you cannot learn, that's in Dr. Bruce Perry's work. I just want to point that out because you said that, and I want to make sure people know that that's a fact. Anyway, keep exactly. going. Exactly. It is a fact. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. And yeah, I've worked in special education and done the testing and all that. But also the kids a lot of times feel singled out. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I don't really want to get the help because everyone's going to know or, you know, they're... But meanwhile, like you said, the the lesser uh, affected or not effective, but um, acting out kids, they need help, too. All of them could use this, you know. And the reason is, is it goes right back to your book title. If you don't get help, the easiest thing to do in our society besides watch the Internet is to use drugs and alcohol, which are yep. readily available in almost yep. every home or in any way you can you can access them quite easily yeah. and that leads to 
a long, could be a lifelong addiction and an early death. It could be. Yes. Um, yes. And so that is what we're dealing with. We talk about this stuff. It's not just about, oh, feeling good and getting along. If you don't know how to deal with your emotions, and and the fourth thing you talk about, which is distress tolerance, learning these skills to calm down, because we all get angry and upset. You know, We all get frustrated and emotional in relationships and workplaces and school. But if we don't learn these skills, turning to drugs and alcohol um, is is so easy because it does numb us it calms us down or whatever it does you know depending on the drug or whatever and that leads to worse problems because in your in your book you're helping people untangle problems that possibly have been going on for years right with horrible health consequences and that's where it all starts like you just named it right there with the kids it starts there yeah so exactly so i have another go ahead do you have another point oh no go ahead well, I had a I had another question because we're, we're we're sort of towards the end, but um, I was I was just curious, you know, what is a message? Because you talk about people bringing this to the therapist, you talk about people could buy the book. I, I guess it maybe this is something, and I'm not sure. But have you also thought about the audience of like a family member of somebody who's um, you know, has an addiction, maybe learning their own skills. Have you, as that an audience that we've considered yes. as well? Most definitely. I mean, as you and I both know, addiction is a, a family disease or a family affects the family system. Mm -hmm. And this is very appropriate for a loved one um, or caregiver or a spouse or brother, sister to also learn these skills um, because very few clients are live in a vacuum. And, um, you know, so by having the family be involved is also empowering. So let's say, you know, your client is, ah, but drink because I'm upset. Okay, let's try the stop skill. Uh, let's do that right now. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes we need reminding, but if someone in our family or our partner doesn't have doesn't know these skills they can maybe talk to us which is helpful but if they could also say oh let's work on this kind of like with the kids when i'm teaching them these skills i'm teaching the parents at the same time so the kids like mm -hmm. have temper tantrum and then the parent goes hey wait susie let's try the break skill and they're like oh okay let's do it together and so that's very helpful. I mean, the parent has to learn alongside their child these skills. And I would say, like you're suggesting, Paul, that a family member needs to, it'd be very helpful if they learn these skills as well as the person who's suffering from alcohol use or substance use disorder. You know, very helpful. Yeah. And and I think that that mindset, you know, helps us get away from the judgment, um, which yeah. is a whole... I mean, we could write a whole book about the stigma and judgment behind, um, you know, mental illness and also just drug and alcohol addiction, how people get stigmatized, right? Yeah, it's it's still out there. Not as bad, but um, not as prevalent, but it's still out there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm just curious, is there anything uh, that you feel like you didn't get a chance to say that you want to kind of tell the listener or maybe a potential reader of your book? Because I'm going to have all of the links to your book uh, available in the episode notes here. 
Um, but is there anything, you know, we feel like we maybe we missed or anything you want to add? Well, I wanted to add, um, especially people who are in recovery and dual diagnosed like myself, um, a lot of times I felt like I was a failure in recovery, even though I didn't pick up a drink or a drug. But my trajectory, like most people, was like, oh, I got sober, I got married, house scar. And as soon as I got sober, my trajectory was going down. Mm. And I thought, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing these steps like 12 times over. But I didn't realize that the symptoms of bipolar were underneath the surface and then came up. Mm. And then when I went into the DBT uh, group, I also felt, you know, there's a lot of judgment. We feel like failure. And here I am, you know, a psychologist myself. I'm sober like 45 years. And why is this still hard? Well, and that's why I wrote a book because sometimes the tools in the 12 and 12 aren't enough. Mm. Um, and, you know, and it's written 80 years ago. So there was very limited tools at that time to help someone who's alcoholic or addict. And like you said, the trauma and forward therapy, you know, like there's 80 new therapies now that weren't available back then. So I wanted to offer hope because I didn't have any hope for a while there after this, especially the second manic break. And my wish is for you is the book is to offer hope that, you know, I'm here as living proof that you can get through this very challenging, difficult time. Um, whether you're at the extreme of feeling suicidal or just emotionally dysregulated a lot, there is hope. Uh, it will get better. And it's important to look at. So the book offers you additional help in addition to the 12 step. It's not that you're not doing the program right, which I thought for so many years. It's that there's additional challenges you have that the steps aren't designed to help you intervene with. That's why I wrote the DBT and 12 step book to help you intervene with those other issues. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. P. I feel like that comes from the heart and I feel like that's excellent for anybody who's out there, no matter if they're struggling or if they know someone who's struggling, the tools are there. And especially with this book, um, they are doable. Obviously it's great if you're really struggling to go into therapy and do them, but um, they're also there just to read and, and to kind of yes. work through like a workbook. So I really appreciate your time and uh, coming on the show. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. 
It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organization, such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.
Why is it always crying, quarreling? 